0: Law Talk Radio.
1: Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. I'm your host Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a global law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington D.C., as well as our clients overseas who do business in the U.S. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Our primary activities are public relations, marketing, and credentialing. We also offer a wide variety of practice management services to help you with all the back-end business of managing a law firm. Today's guest is attorney Donna M. Adler. She's licensed to practice in the state of Illinois and before the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of Illinois Eastern Division and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Donna holds the following degrees, first, from the University of Chicago, her Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts degrees, from Northwestern University, her law degree, and from the University of Notre Dame, her Master of Arts and Doctor of Philosophy. Having practiced law for over 25 years in the Chicago area, Attorney Donna Adler has built a career on incorporating education and service to local professional and business communities. Donna Adler's outreach includes advising on immigration issues affecting employers such as the particulars of U visas from our last show. Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County in Oakbrook Terrace, Illinois, and she is also of counsel to the law office of Anthony J. Conniff in Glen Ellen. Attorney Donna Adler's practice areas include general civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense, administrative law, mediation services, and appellate work. We do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we invite your caller questions either by email directly at nick at alrpra.com with Law Talk Radio in the subject line, or please call in by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. That telephone number, again, is area code 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. By way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests among callers and guests on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. If you have further questions, you're always encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Now, before we get going today, we have two announcements to make. First, the Collaborative Law Institute has an announcement. This coming January 5th, 2011, from 2 to 5 p.m., and with a reception to follow from 5 to 6, an MCLE seminar will be given at the Chicago Bar Association, located at 321 Plymouth Court in Chicago, Illinois. More information is available at chicagobar.org. This three-hour session will be a prelude to the larger two-day training. There is also a non-family civil collaborative training here in Chicago coming up in February, information about which can be found at cpchicago.net. The presentation is entitled Collaborative Law, Expanding Your Practice with this Limited Scope Model. The seminar on January 25th will include the History, Mechanics, and Ethics, Uh, considerations as well as the shift in communication styles that is necessary to shift to this practice area and new developing area of conflict resolution. Discussions will cover the application of the collaborative practice model in family law as well as non-family law cases and the necessary steps that practitioners must take to retool their practices to provide the collaborative practice option to their clients. Our second announcement today that a week from uh, this past Wednesday, so coming on January 12th, we have extended this week, the classes start at the Law Practice Management School. This weekly online Law Practice Management Education Program covers management, marketing, technology, and finance. For more information about this hands-on seminar series or to apply, please visit ALRPRA.com for more information and to apply. The price of this 12-week course is $500 and missed lectures are recorded as Windows Media Player files for later review. Course descriptions are available on the school page located at alrpra.com. Now by way of subject matter for today's show, Attorney Donna Adler, again who's been a regular guest on our Law Talk Radio programs, is going to talk a little bit about and discuss immigration and customs enforcement issues as well as worksite enforcement of the laws prohibiting the employment of illegal aliens, and finally, the potential impact on small businesses. Donna Adler is very interested in helping businesses comply with the law and avoid substantial penalties associated with the prohibited employments. You can also visit ALRPRA.com forward slash LawTalkRadio to find Attorney Donna Adler's related immigration lecture on U-Visas from December 2nd. So without further ado, I'd like to say hello to Donna and get going with our show.
0: Hello, Nick. It's good to be back again. I think today's topic is a very interesting one. It's also, it's also um, quite topical. I'm here to discuss, as you've mentioned, um, immigration and customs enforcement, enforcement priorities with respect to the employment of illegal immigration, immigrants in the workplace. Um, the Obama administration is enforcing these laws in a way different than the Bush administration did. First, by way of background, on November 6, 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act became a law in the United States. This law made it illegal for employers to hire or recruit unauthorized aliens. It required employers to verify the identity and employment eligibility of their employees and it created civil and criminal sanctions for violations. What's interesting about today's environment is that ICE is really going after these criminal um, sanctions in ways that employers have not seen before. And no one's too small to be affected, um, almost. Um, The purpose of the legislation is to reduce employment as a magnet for illegal immigration, and the um, Congressional intent was to reduce the level of illegal immigration that was afforded by the employment of illegal aliens. Section 274B of the Immigration and Nationality Act, that's codified at 8 U.S.C. 1324 little a, parens B, requires employers to verify the identity and employment eligibility of all um, individuals that they hire um, after November 6, 1986. Regulations that are applicable to um, that section of the law can be found at HCFR sections 274A.1-274A.11. So again, the section of the law that we are dealing with is 8 U.S.C. section 1324 little a and the regs HCFR sections 274A.1-274A.11. Now, what is it that employers have to do to verify that people are eligible to be employed in the United States? HCFR section 274 little a.2 designates the Employment Eligibility Verification Form, commonly known among the employers as an I-9, as the form that they have to have employees fill out. ICE is really going after the technicalities of the the, uh, completion of this form. Em- employees have to fill out section one of the form at the time of hire. Employers have to review the documents that are presented by the employees to ensure that the documents reasonably appear to be genuine and relate to the individual. Employers do not have to become document fraud experts. Um, they don't have to be able to tell that um, documents that look bona fide um, are in fact are in fact bona fide by hiring some kind of forensics expert, although some employers have have worried about this. <laughs> If the documents appear genuine the required documents appear genuine, then employers are supposed to um, accept them, otherwise they could be um, open themselves up to um to allegations by potential employees that they're discriminating in the hiring of um, of employees on on illegal basis of citizenship or immigration status. so employers have to be very careful about um about examining documents and they can't require. Um, more documents of people who are not citizens of the United States than um, um, than they would require of a citizen. The law is very clear on, and, and the I-9 form is very clear on the types of documentation that employees offer to an employer to uh, verify that they're work eligible in the United States. Section two of the form is supposed to be completed within three business days of hire of the person's hire. The employer is required by the law to re-verify that an individual is still authorized to work if an EAD, that is an Employment Authorization Document or other form of Employment Authorization expires. And that verification has to occur no later than the date that the work expires. Re-verification can be accomplished and is accomplished normally by requiring the individual to present any acceptable document that establishes Employment Authorization and by completing section three of the original form I-9 or of a new form I-9 or by having the individual complete an entire new form I-9. The employer is supposed to retain form I- I-9 for at least three years from the date of an employee's hire or for one year after the employee is terminated, whichever is longer. And the employer is required to present the I-9 for inspection to officers of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The Office of Special Counsel for Immigration-Related Unfair Employment of Practices um, that office can come into play if um, the employer, for example, is committing document abuse in the hiring of employees by requiring some employees to present more documentation than others or present it to the, document of labor, to the Department of Labor upon request. Okay, now, the Bush Administration was enforcing um, these laws against employers by, by magnificent raids, braids that made the papers and, and, and made the press. The Obama Administration is taking a different, um, is taking a different approach. The Obama administration is conducting I-9 audits um, using immigration customs enforcement enforcement agents. The employers who have um, had to suffer some of these audits have complained about some of the SWAT techniques that um, ICE agents seem to use. One of the first things I'm gonna do to convince people that they really do have to take the enforcement of these laws seriously is just to go through a list of stories that I've collected about um, what kinds of businesses are being audited, under what circumstances, and sort of put the fear of God into people for their own good, um, concerning the civil and criminal penalties that can attach based on um, various news reports. So I'm going to start with, well before I go to that, what I'd like to do is um, also emphasize and talk about why ICE has enforcement priorities um, in, in the workforce. And then we'll go on to the case examples, okay. specific case examples. But ICE is very clear um, about its reasons for worksite enforcement. As I've mentioned, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Obama Administration and, the, and Congress um, believe that employment is the primary driving force behind illegal immigration, so they want to combat this problem at its, at its source. Um, ICE claims to wish to work with employers um, to stem the tide of those across borders illegally, although to employers it might seem so. (laughs) ICE is is particularly willing to find them and and go after them criminally. Um, ICE is clear on on the harm of allowing illegal immigrants to continue working in the United States. Quote, unquote, um, on the ICE website, illegal aliens often turn to criminal activity, including document fraud, social security fraud, or identity theft in order to get jobs such crimes adversely affect the lives of US citizens and legal immigrants and it can take years for victims to repair the damage. This is straight from the ICE website. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the demand for fraudulent documents created by um, illegal aliens creates thriving criminal enterprises that supply them. Work, work site enforcement also reduces the demand for illegal employment and protects employment opportunities for the nation's lawful workforce. That's the reasoning um, that that um, ICE gives us. How do businesses and communities suffer from illegal workers? Well. Responsible employers are put at a competitive disadvantage um, from the government standpoint, and the government wants to help eliminate that competitive disadvantage. It Also helps to undermine the labor laws for uh, legitimate workers here. If um, businesses here can hire people for less than um, the minimum wage, then it reduces the number of jobs available to um, US workers and also encourages uh, a continued sort of underground in those kinds of jobs. How does ICE determine which employers to investigate? It can go on any lead that it gets. There can be anonymous tips. Um, there can be um, specific intelligence obtained from any variety of sources. So ICE can get an anonymous tip from an employee or a disgruntled person who wasn't hired or, or whatever. Uh, why aren't more employers arrested and charged? Um, well, just because illegal aliens um, are at a place of employment doesn't mean that the employer knew it or has committed um, has committed um a violation intentionally or ought to be sanctioned. You That's know, a good point. So I think that um ultimately the purpose is not to um scare the business community out of its wits, but simply to um to help encourage compliance um, compliance with the law. In many different industries in the United States I think um employers are um put in a very difficult position by these kinds of enforcement techniques. Um if they're there are some industries that depend so heavily on the employment of illegals that there should be time to rectify okay that situation, I think, but that's just my opinion, and I'm just here to talk about uh, what the work site enforcement is. I think it might be interesting to um, our audience today to hear about some of some of the recent cases when I say recent, i'm beginning. In July of 2010.
1: Alright, so. so we're going to come back and have some cases and examples right after our first sponsor break. Very interesting stuff. Uh, we're talking again about the enforcement provisions of immigration, and the eligibility and audits of employers, all sorts of very, very interesting immigration issues. We'll be right back with Donna Adler for more information. Our sponsor breaks, we first want to bring you Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. When you need the right legal services to advance creativity, call the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Her big, attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking on the Like button on the law firm's business page, you will receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Our second sponsor today is The Lawyer Market, and I discovered The Lawyer Market some time ago, and this is a great website, actually one of the best-kept secrets for solos and small firms trying to market their practices. You can join The Lawyer Market for free, and the online marketplace will actually send you the name and contact information of consumers who are interested in hiring you. The Lawyer Marketplace offers win-win solutions to its listed attorneys and potential clients searching for their services. Please visit the lawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers for more information. That website again is the Slash lawyers. Now back to our program, we want to encourage our listeners to call in with any questions at area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Your questions and comments are also accepted through email um, through at nick at alrpra.com or, of course, through the uh, contact us section at alrpra.com. Now back to our program, Donna Adler is going to give us some uh, stories and examples of uh, ICE enforcement and how much fun we have when uh, the officials show up at the door. <laughs>
0: yeah, not too much fun if you're on the employer end. But I think that the going through some examples will give people some idea of the range of possibilities there is out there and um, the types of interest that, that ICE has. Mm-hmm. So i collected a set of examples beginning in July of 2010, which is relatively recent. That's not that long ago, coming up to more recent um, dates so that people can get a feel for this. The Los Angeles Times reported um, July 1, 2010, made a report about a Fullerton, California manufacturing plant called Terry Universal, Inc. That company produces equipment for semiconductors and pharmaceutical manufacturers. It opened in um, 1976 and has about 230 workers, or at least did um, as of July 1, 2010. ICE agents had a search warrant. And they looked for, when they arrived on premises, they were on the premises, they looked for job applications, employment verification forms, um, correspondence from the Social Security Administration regarding the use of Social Security numbers that did not match employee names. When um, employers submit their wage and hour reports, the Social Security Administration can issue to employers something called a Social Security No-Match Letter which puts an employer on notice that um, that Social Security is having difficulty identifying the um, individual who's using that Social Security number. Immigration documents, I just wanted to look at immigration documents. Purportedly and reportedly, um, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement people disrupted the entire plant. They prevented workers from leaving the location. They stopped sales, production, and shipping. The attorney for the um, company said that he thought it was entire, you know, complete overkill. There were 40 ICE agents who came in and stormed the place using what the attorney called SWAT techniques. ICE arrested 43 workers, all of whom except for two, yet later released, gave NTAs to the people that it had arrested, NTAs are notices to appear in immigration court, okay, for removal proceedings. ICE was there by its own admission to gather evidence for a criminal investigation against the company. Now, ICE chief John Morton had said that ICE was focusing on companies that had some link to national security. That's one kind of category they're interested in. Also, though, and separately, employers who are knowingly hiring illegal workers and committing other crimes. For example, extorting employees, failing to pay minimum wages, or harboring illegal aliens. Another case um, reported in the New York Times by Sarah Kershaw, September 7, 2010, regarding the French gourmet restaurant in San Diego. It's a 45-seat restaurant, a bakery, and eatery in Pacific Beach, in that area of San Diego. Now, people who are restaurateurs, okay, should be put on notice by this that no one's too small. A 45-seat restaurant is a nice restaurant, but it's not. It's not a huge mega corporation. Mm-hmm. Michael Malico was the owner, and he was facing the possibility of 30 years in prison, $4 million in fines, and the government seizure of his business. In April of 2010, he was indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of illegally hiring up to 12 undocumented immigrants by report in this um, New York Times article, and allegedly um, continued to employ illegal aliens after learning that they were in the country illegally. The article further reported that in June, the owner of two Maryland restaurants who pled guilty to hiring and harboring illegal um, immigrants was ordered to forfeit to the government more than $700,000 in assets and a motorcycle, the owner's motorcycle. The owner faced up to 10 years in prison by report. In November of 2009, there was a restaurateur in Mississippi who pled guilty to hiring illegal immigrants, and he was sentenced to a year in prison, a year of supervised release, Combined fees in the case shared among several defendants with $600,000. The article um, indicates that 12.7 million workers exist in the restaurant industry. Among 2.6 million of, of them are chefs and 20% are, are estimated to be illegal. Among 360,000 dishwashers um, have a rate of 28% um, undocumented alien um, employment.
1: The statistics are just amazing. I mean,
0: are, are these are a
1: lot of people we're talking about here.
0: There are quite a few so people. A lot
1: of business. How much? Think about how much money goes on with a restaurant. If you shut a restaurant down,
0: exactly. Okay, so restaurateurs um, have every reason to uh, take um, take this um, enforcement effort enforcement effort seriously. One restaurateur, though, um, as reported in the same New York Times article, and who preferred to remain anonymous, said that. Um, The restaurant industry always, always hires undocumented workers because they're willing to work, willing to learn, and they're less expensive than um, U.S. workers. They're loyal, stable, dependable. They will work without health insurance, sick days, paid vacation, and paid breaks. On September 8, 2010, ICE issued a news release stating that it had arrested Kiat Bui, a resident of Centralville, Virginia, and owner of three Viet House restaurants in Virginia on charges of knowingly employing and harboring illegal aliens. It is alleged that between April 5th, 2005, and April 20th, 2010, we um, had allegedly employed at least seven illegal aliens, only seven, okay, thanks, seven. I mm-hmm. said only seven, but seven are getting him in trouble, and paid the workers in cash. He had not kept payroll records for them. He did not report the workers to the Virginia Employment um, Com- Commission, and he had not filed an I-9 form for any employees paid in cash. He was supposed to do this within three days after the employees were hired.
1: He's paying them
0: in cash. Yes, paying them in cash. So he tried to avoid uh, compliance with the law by paying them in cash. That was a big mistake. Other reports. On September 2nd, 2010, the Department of Justice, Department of Public Affairs, announced that a federal grand jury in Honolulu had indicted six people for engaging in a conspiracy to commit Forced labor and document servitude, so this takes us up into a whole different category of cases. Um, cases like the restaurant cases are, are, are one set of situations, but then we have um, the forced labor and document servitude cases. The charges arose from the alleged scheme of the six defendants to um, coerce the labor of 400 Thai nationals brought by the defendants to the U.S. from Thailand from May of 2004 to September of 2005 to work on farms across the country under a U.S. Federal Agricultural Guest Worker Program. The defendants were an Israeli national, several other people, two people who were employed in manpower recruitment and some other labor recruiters. Okay, now they allegedly conspired and devised a scheme to obtain this labor of the 400 Thai Nationals by enticing them to come to the U.S. with false promises, a very lucrative job. And when they came to the United States, the um, companies uh, had them actually pledge their pledge their property as pledged property back home and, and give money or um, pledge money as a... Um, as surety that they would remain employed with the company. So what happened when the employees got when the Thai nationals got to the United States is that they were uh, subjected to peonage. It was debt servitude. They were working then to pay back, okay, this debt, this pledge that um, pledge that was given. There's debt peonage, and they were threatened with the threatened with uh, the debt held over their heads if they
1: if they were going to leave. We've seen movies like that. Yes, yeah. and there
0: are there are cases like that. A fifth case, a Magic Valley, Idaho home builder, pled guilty to federal charges of employing illegal aliens um, following... Where was that? This was in Magic Valley, Idaho.
1: Magic Valley, Idaho. So not just New York, Chicago, and L.A., Idaho.
0: But Magic Valley, Idaho. Magic
1: Valley, Idaho. Ever been there?
0: No, I haven't been to Magic Valley. But this home builder pled guilty to federal charges of employing illegal aliens following an Immigration Customs Enforcement investigation. He constructed and built homes in Twin Falls, Idaho, For a 17-month period, starting in November 2005, he employed three Mexican nationals not authorized to work in the U.S. to do some framing and drywalling and other work of that type. His charge carries a maximum prison sentence of six months, supervised release of up to a year, a fine of up to $9,000. Plus a maximum term of probation of five years. So you have to consider that the number of employees here involved is not um, is not is not great. It's not large. Three Mexican nationals were enough to get this um,
1: home builder in trouble. And the risk of saving how much on paying proper taxes and whatnot? You know, how much time would it? You know, I really don't see the cost savings. Well, I think,
0: though, that, that employers have not been expecting this kind of approach from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and there are certain industries in the United States that have um, used, and I think the government has known this for quite some time, undocumented workers. I think what's difficult for um, for business owners is the vigor with which Immigration and Customs Enforcement is going after criminal sanctions, which can seem like a bit of overkill. Um, they haven 't really had much time to uh, readjust their um, their agendas or their work hiring practices, et cetera, in response to um, this kind of this kind of enforcement from the standpoint of, of criminal investigations, well, civil fines are one thing, but criminal sanctions um, criminal sanctions are quite another What 's problematic about um, the per, the deal with which ICE is pursuing criminal sanctions is that we do have these these business owners who are creating employment and to incapacitate them. With criminal charges, um, to to put someone in jail, a, an owner of a small business, is to eliminate his business. You're going to put him out of business. Yeah. And not only those who are um, illegal are impacted, illegal parts of the workforce, but also people who are legitimately employed are going to lose their jobs. if sure. the business goes under. Sure. So I think that there needs to be some rethinking of um, criminal sanctions particularly. Criminal sanctions are supposed to be used only for sort of pattern and practice violators, but... Um, the interpretation of what that means can be quite draconian, from mm-hmm. the standpoint of employers dealing with immigration customs enforcement. A few more examples, so that listeners can get a feel for the range of cases that uh, range of interest that ICE has. In Bad Axe, Michigan, according to an AP Associated Press report of October 13, 2010. Operators of a dairy farm in Michigan, in the Thumb region, were charged with a conspiracy to hire illegal immigrants. This dairy farmer, these dairy farmers, were a man and his wife. They allegedly ignored warnings that their workers had invalid social security, security numbers. Their farm as well was indicted. The farm had been under investigation for more than three years. Now, this is the kind of case um, in which it's appropriate to, it, which is appropriate to use to tell people, look. If you're getting indications from um, Immigration Customs Enforcement that you're under investigation, you better take this seriously. Um, you have no business being under investigation for more than three years and simply ignoring that, hoping or believing that the government is not going to do something about it. If they pegged you for attention, you've got you've got some worries on your hands. On November first, um, two thousand ten, an ICE report or a, a, a press release from from um, ICE indicated that Rancho Cucamonga, a California furniture manufacturing business, um, was targeted for investigation. The president was charged criminally with allegations that the company had hired unauthorized aliens. This president had told ICE that the unauthorized workers um, were no longer employed, but continued to employ them anyway. He's facing a $10,000 fine. He faces up to 66 months in prison. Now think about how that would, would destroy your business. The vice president faces a $5,000 fine plus six months in prison and an anonymous t- generated this uh, investigation.
1: Do you wonder if they're going to get probation on that? I don't know.
0: Who knows? Um, on October 15, 2010, in Miami, Florida, um, there was another ICE news release regarding another slavery case. There was a, um, a man who ran a construction company in his late 50s and his wife and their son. They entered guilty pleas to conspiracy to commit mail fraud and to induce aliens to remain in the U.S. for commercial advantage and private financial gain. Each faces a maximum of 10 years in prison. They had won a contract of about $2.7 million from the um, Miami-Dade Southside Elementary School project. And um, they paid no social security or income taxes um, from the paychecks of some of their workers. They used primarily undocumented workers, but they used an outside agency to get the workers. Um, and ICE arrested and deported uh, 20 of these workers and the payroll uh, administrators. Maybe this is not the other sla- slavery case I was thinking. I could go through any number of other examples, but this gives a basic feel for the types of things that ICE is interested in. ICE is interested in targeting industries that by history have had a large number of undocumented industry uh, undocumented immigrants employed. The construction industry would be um, would be one industry that I think um, needs to take heed of heed of of ICE's um, of ICE's inspections. The restaurant and entertainment industries, and people who are actually engaging in criminal activity with debt um, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. These are these are priorities for ICE as well as companies that have something to do with um, national security. ICE. Has enforcement actions um, that they target against contractors for federal for federal work as well. There are there are any number of uh, of priorities, but you get some sense for the range of cases that are being investigated, and I think that that will be beneficial to um, to our viewers.
1: And I appreciate and I appreciate you looking all those um, those examples well, up I've and got sharing. i so many more. <laughs> it's. I mean it's. I, I can't imagine. Uh, well, first of all, I couldn't imagine operating a business not within compliance of the law, but Taking a risk like that and the, you know, potentially shutting down your business is, is absolutely horrible. So let's take a short break, and we'll read some daily legal news, here from another sponsor, and then I'll be back with Donna Adler. The daily daily legal news today, of course, it always comes from the Am Law Dailies. January 6, 2011, title is Law Firm Mergers Surge in Last Quarter of 2010. Dickinson Wright Expands in Canada. Posted by Brian Baxter, text of the article reads, An analysis by law firm consultancy Altman Wheel has found that law firm mergers were fewer in 2010 than in previous years, but picked up late in the year, according to the Legal Intelligencer, a sibling publication. Next paragraph, there were 39 law firm combinations last year, down from 53 in 2009 and 70 in 2008, the Intelligencer reported but fourth quarter announcements accounted for 38% of the 2010 totals. Fifteen law firm tie-ups were announced in the last four months of the year. Next paragraph. The mergers ranged from massive transatlantic combinations, such as those between Sun and Shine, Nath, and Rosenthal, and Denton, Wild, Spat, and Squire, Sanders, and Dempsey, and Hammonds, to smaller moves like Drinker, Biddle, and Reith doubling the size of its Los Angeles offer in December by acquiring six-lawyer eisenberg Raisman Altman-Wheel's merger line has a complete breakdown of the 2010 U.S. law firm mergers. Altman-Wheel principal Ward Bauer said in a statement that, quote, upswing in law firm merger activity in the fourth quarter is a leading indicator of what we expect will be a busy year for law firm combinations in 2011 period, end quote. You can find that article located today on the AMLAW Daily News, again, article from January 6th, titled Law Firm Mergers Surge in Last Quarter of 2010. All right, our third sponsor of the day is Jim Thompson. He is the one behind the local Get Clients Now program. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach, and his Get Clients Now program helps you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques, to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson in the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. We'll also let you know that Jim Thompson is going to be one of the guest lecturers in the Law Practice Management School online webinar series, along with other practice management individuals and those who come out of the background who can speak best and lecture on management, marketing, technology, and finance. More information, alrpra.com forward slash school. Now back to our show. We are lucky to have Attorney Donna Adler here talking about ICE enforcement and what employers need to do to be compliant with the law, and certainly the terrible risks they run in being non-compliant. Donna, back to you.
0: Okay, I did have, I I did find okay the other slavery case. So I want to share that that one additional case because it is a, a red flag not only for um, people who are doing what this couple was doing, but also I would think for. Um, other kinds of businesses, if there are cleaning businesses engaging in this kind of conduct, if there are um, if there are adult so-called adult clubs engaging in this kind of conduct, um, they are open to um, many risks of, um, I think, ICE. So
1: similar people action. we hear in like human trafficking yes, type exactly. cases. Yes, uh,
0: This Florida case was a human trafficking case. It involved two people, Florida couple, um, Sophia Emanuel and Alfonso Baldonado. They owned a Boca Raton labor contracting service and they pleaded guilty to conspiring to hold 39 Filipino nationals against their will while forcing them, forced them to work in domestic and labor servitude in upscale country clubs and hotels. So what happened was that these people um, obtained a cheap labor force by inducing inducing the um, workers to come to the United States. They um, induced them to come with promises again of employment, but then charged them a recruitment fee and made them work that off. When they arrived um, in Florida, the couple confiscated their passports, housed them in overcrowded substandard conditions without adequate food or drinking water. I think it was a three-bedroom house and people were sleeping on the floor and they were sleeping in the garage. Put them to work at area country clubs and hotels for little or no pay. These are the allegations. Required them to remain in, in the defendant's service and um, unpaid when there was an insufficient work. They ordered them not to leave the premises without permission and threatened to have them arrested and deported if they complained uh, about these terms and conditions. <laughs> um, one of the owners also pleaded guilty to lying on the application filed with the U.S. Labor Department to obtain foreign le- labor certifications and visas under the federal H-2B um, guest worker program. So he was trying to create an appearance of legitimacy for something that was entirely illegitimate. Um, these people allegedly victimized and pled guilty to victimizing. Um, very vulnerable people for profit. These are the kinds wow. of teenage cases and slavery cases that we see. This is the shape and the face of modern-day slavery. I don't think that individuals who um, knowingly use okay, labor from, um, from organizations or from um, employers who use this kind of labor, who knowingly do it or suspect it, are really safe using that labor either. Sure. As one of the other cases that I, I recited um, indicates. In any case, what happens when um, ICE decides to come to your door? You run. <laughs> no, you don't run. You better not run. Um, ICE will issue a notice of inspection on any employer. That's the first step in the process. Okay, a notice of inspection is a serious document, and it is. Uh, it may lead to a notice of an intent to fine. Now, the handbook that ICE uses to conduct these inspections says, quote-unquote, the purpose of a Form I-9 inspection is to identify any violations that might lead to criminal prosecution of an employer or identify either substantive or technical violations that might result in the issuance of an an administrative fine or warning notice. The substantive or technical violations have to do with um, whether or not you filled in that I-9 form correctly. The difference between technical and substantive violations has to do with the substantive ones. are." Are those um, that, if you commit substantive violations, or what's determined to be a substantive violation, is something that had you paid attention to it, it, might have alerted you to the fact that someone was illegal. So that's the line that ICE is trying to draw. But notice that the um, handbook itself that ICE uses to inspect, um, uses for its inspections, indicates that the purpose of an I-9 inspection is to find, is to find violations. They are predisposed to find violations if there are any. So if you can notice a notice of inspection, you have been targeted and you are in trouble. You need help, okay? (laughs) You need help and and you need a quick, um, you should probably get counsel at that point if you get a notice of inspection. Now, what happens, okay? Prior to the notice of inspection, um, ICE will usually contact a receiving business entity to obtain the necessary information to to furnish it or issue it, but not always. Exceptions to that policy um, Will occur if the group supervisor of the uh, of the people who are going to the I special agents who are going to do the investigation determines that prior contact would jeopardize the case integrity or the outcome. And, and just in case anyone thinks that uh, getting a notice of inspection is the um, is the is the clue to go to the I nine forms and start filling in stuff that you didn't fill in before, mm-hmm. um, uh, probably not the smartest thing to probably not the smartest thing to do uh, because if you're Trying to commit that kind of um so post ex post facto or trick I sites is going to know it. They have forensic experts that they use to help them with these inspections. So you better just be um, ready to be upfront and honest about um, about what's on those I nine forms. Now HCFR section 274A.2, parens b, parens two seventy four a point two, friends b, friends two friends little two I requires ICE to provide an employer with at least three days' written notice prior to a Form I-9 inspection. Now, if you're a big employer and you get this notice and you have three days, that can be a mammoth task to try to um, try to pull down all your Form I-9 forms, get them into um, shape for ICE to inspect.
1: Or if you're even available in the location, what if you have businesses all over the place?
0: Exactly. That okay. could be so a really mammoth, mammoth job um, to pull together all the documents that would be Required, but you need to move if you get notice of inspection, um, and you certainly need to be be communicating with uh, with ICE if you think you need uh, more than three days. If you don't produce these I nine forms in in three days, that itself can be cited as a violation for which you can pay a, substan- a, a substantial civil civil fine. What will the notice of inspection usually contain? Well, it's going to contain the name of the business to be inspected and the date and time of the proposed um, inspection. The um, employer can waive the three day notice and allow ICE to come in earlier. But an employer is not supposed to be pressured to sign that waiver. And um if an employer expresses no interest in it, ICE is not supposed to push it. But you can waive it. If you if you think, look, I'm in good shape, someone's given a someone's given a false tip and I have nothing to hide and, and the employer wants to do it faster, then um he can do it faster. But I would advise anybody, um or I would if someone came to me and said I got a notice of inspection, I would say you did the right thing, you need um, you need counsel, and, and um, you need to be sort of guided through this process so that you're you're cooperating all the ways required of you, and so that that you can try to avoid um, avoid fines by correcting any technical violations they they might find or um, whatnot. But notices of inspection can can include a request for will not always include a request for, but can include requests for not only all the Form I-9s of all current and employees, but a list of all current terminated employees with higher termination dates, copies of quarterly wage and hour reports, and payroll data for all employees covering the period of inspection. I mean, for one thing, those are going to have social security numbers on them. Quarterly tax statements, business information um, that includes the employer identification number, taxpayer identification number, the owner's social security number, owner address information, telephone numbers, email addresses copies of articles of incorporation, copies of business licenses, and any other pertinent information. Copies of any and all correspondence from the Social Security Administration to the employer regarding mismatched or no matched Social Security numbers. Those forms are um, usually known as employer correction requests or requests for employee information, and they're commonly referred to as no match letters these are the kinds of information that a notice of inspection can, um, can contain. Also, whether the company is a current or previous participant in the e-verify or social security number verification services provided by the government. Now, what are those? Those are actually too complicated to cover in um, in this session, but e-verify is a way for employers to verify the eligibility of an employee to work. Uh, let People listening to this program just on that kind of notification um, or that short description of E Verify, I think that it's it's um, something they should hop to um, hop to participate in. It is a voluntary program. There are all kinds of pros and cons for any particular employer that that might be associated with deciding whether or not to use E Verify. Um, I think some employers. Um, some employers are concerned that if they participate in E-Verify, then they make themselves easy targets with respect to any technical violation that might come up in the E-Verify process. And so they, they um, sort of co-opt themselves or allow the government to co-opt them into a process that is going to produce fines for them down the line. I don't think that's the government intention, but it's something that can happen your participation in E-Verify. Problem. Well, your participation in e- E-Verify might, might trigger an inspection. Um, Just for example, like um, a a parallel example, if you're you're some some company that has to deal regularly with the FDA, you do a voluntary recall and the FDA is right there, right? Sure, (laughs) right, right, right. So it's it's that kind of problem that someone might be concerned with in determining whether or not to participate and you verify it's Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's a voluntary program.
1: I I have another quick quick question just to jump in. When you talk about producing these documents, do those need to be in paper form or can they be in electronic form? uh they, they
0: they can be in in um in they can be in um you have to produce them in the form you've got them in if if ice wants them in paper form uh mm-hmm. you're going to have to cooperate with ice in terms right. of the form of the documents but um for a huge business that's going to be uh that's going to be uh substantial that's going to be a substantial question. Exactly what form to produce the documentation in? I mean, if all you have is electronic form, or you've got things on, on microfiche, you're going to have to produce them that way. You have to produce them in the form you've got them in. If um, if they're electronically stored, then um, then you can't produce them that way. But there are a number of answers to mm-hmm. number of answers to that. Just wanted way. to ask a that question. would have to be uh, logistically sure. figured out. The Social Security Number Verification Service. Um, ICE may want to know whether the employer participates in that, but employers should be aware that they can't use that service to verify whether a new hire or someone they're potentially um, wanting to hire new um, is using a Social Security number that is his own or using it properly. It's not to be used for that purpose. Um, Social Security verification system is supposed to be used simply to verify the accuracy of the wage and hour data that an employer has for current or existing employees. And if you misuse that system, okay, for other purposes, you can be subject to liability, a civil liability on other grounds. Okay. Um so employers have to be very careful not to think that the Social Security number verification system is um, is a means of determining whether or not um, people are people are authorized, that people are authorized to work, e verify, okay, is that other system, government sponsored system that can help with that can help with that. But if um the notice of inspection may request all that information. Employers by regulation are required um, only to provide the four line lines for inspection, but if you refuse to provide the other information, then ICE can go after you with a subpoena for the other documentation that deems necessary for its inspection.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's take a break quick and get to our final sponsor and final uh, practice management resources and then come back to some final considerations um, in immigration uh, in enforcement and everything with ICE. For our management, practice management resources of the day, we want to start with number one, ABA. The ABA has the ABA Law Practice Management section, and ababooks.org has the title that we found today, thought was interesting, called The Role of Independent Directors in Corporate Governance. Updated and expanded, The Role of Independent Directors provides a concise, plain English overview for corporate directors of their duties and their place in the corporate governance process. For attorneys, the accompanying CD-ROM provides access to more than 10,000 pages of governance and securities law source material underlying the text. This new book will provide independent directors and their advisors with an understanding of the primary legal and governance issues that have evolved in the corporate governance environment in the past decade, including the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and the Dodd-Frank Act. So again, the title is The Role of Independent Directors in Corporate Governance. I think that's very appropriate given today's topic, and um, a bit of a happy accident that that is the first title that popped up when we went to ababooks.org. Our second practice management resource is the Chicago Daily Law Bullet and the Chicago, da- Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Both of these give up-to-date legal news, and from the Chicago area and around Illinois. You can also check on the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for those lawyers going through career transitions. It also hosts a monthly career seminars for lawyer in flux, lawyers in flux in their careers. Visit attorneysintransition.com. I am one of the weekly advice columnists for the Attorneys in Transition blog and I feel strongly about the many benefits offered by the Law Bulletin Publishing Company. Our third practice management resource, of course, is the Law Practice Management School. And, again, classes start January 12, 2011. Email nick at alrpra.com for more information, and please include the Law Practice Management School in your subject line. Our final sponsor of the day is credit damage expert George Finder. He is a credit damage expert who can put a dollar amount on credit damages. He is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and the attorneys and plaintiffs who retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas, such as personal injury, employment law, family law, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's analysis services. Right now, any of our listeners who contact George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on Law Talk Radio will receive free of charge one hour of cle presentation so grab a pen and take down the female address to respond to this offer it's credit damage associates plural credit damage Associates at gmx.com available nationwide credit damage expert george finders website is full of resources please visit creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about george finder and his services let us remind callers and listeners out there that you can always dial in by 917-889-9732 option 1 be placed in the queue, call that number again is 917-889-9732. Questions and comments are also uh, submitted through the comment section on alrpra.com or by email at nick at ALRPRA.com. Of course, for many of the, those who are finding our shows on social media and other Uh, interactive media programs, please feel free to share these uh, shows with other people you believe would find them beneficial. Of course, if you have any comments or questions for any of our guests or have any ideas on programming for our shows, please do drop us a line and let us know. Now we're back to our final segment with Attorney Donna Adler, who is talking about ICE enforcement and was just sharing some provisions and information uh, on what may happen and what you may expect. When ICE comes knocking at your door.
0: Okay, we've talked about the notice of inspection. Mm-hmm. There isn't enough time to go through the entire process, but suppose um, I want to say a few things I know people will be interested in. Suppose ICE comes, does an inspection, finds violations, and I'll say uh, a few things about the types of violations ICE um, you know ICE might find, and um, about the penalties that might be attached. But What happens um, once ICE is done an inspection and has found violations and issues and notice of intent to fine, employers should know that they have um, 30 days to ask for an administrative review of that. They can have a hearing on that. Um, They can contest the notice of intent to fine. So, but they have to request it within 30 days. And and then, if after the, um, they'll have a hearing. And then the hearing officer, the rule will not uphold the fine and. what happens then is that um, the employer is required to pay the fine if uh, that fine is upheld um, to, to a particular address, to a particular, um, given, a, given a notice, and, and on the notice, you, the employer gets instructions about where to pay. You have to pay by money order, or certified check, or bank check, okay, just so that um, that overall framework is, is clear to people. What kinds of things can there be fines for? What kinds of penalties can there be? First... Let's talk about the most serious ones, the criminal penalties. What subjects somebody to possible criminal penalties in the hiring of an illegal worker? Um, Is anyone who hires an illegal worker or even anyone who knowingly continues to employ or um, knowingly hires an illegal worker, is anyone subject to such criminal penalties? Well, let's take a look at 8 U.S.C. section 1324 A.F. which talks about criminal penalties and injunctions for pattern or practice violations. Okay, if you've done this once, if you've hired somebody once and continue to employ him, uh, and that's your complete history, that's probably not going to subject you, although who knows, to these criminal penalties. But criminal penalties and injunctions are for pattern and practice violators. F1 reads, any person or entity which engages in a pattern or practice of violation of section A1A or A2, that means the illegal hiring, shall be fined not more than $3,000 for each unauthorized alien with respect to whom such a violation occurs, imprisoned for not more than six months for the entire pattern or practice, or both, notwithstanding the provisions of any order of federal law relating to fine levels. Two, enjoining of pattern or practice violations. Whenever the Attorney General has reasonable cause to believe that a person or entity is engaged in a pattern or practice of employment, recruitment, or referral in violation, of um, the illegal hiring provisions, the attorney general may bring a civil action in the appropriate district court of the United States, requesting such relief, including a permanent or temporary injunction, restraining order, or other order against the person or entity. So these criminal penalties are supposed to be used against pattern and practice violators. Exactly what that means is something that um, is going to be, you know, worked out as ICE continues these. Um, these inspections and we'll get more experience in the field with that um as you know as time goes on. But just so that people take this sufficiently seriously, when we talk about what can initiate an inspection, I want you to think about the um the talk that I gave on U visa's last time. Someone, an illegal an illegal immigrant working for a business could actually um try, attempt to get a U visa by reporting an employer if it were the right kind if it were the right type of case. If you'll recall, 8 U.S.C. section 1101, U, defines, okay, who is eligible to apply for a U visa. People who are being subjected to trafficking or being held hostage or debt peonage, like um, the debt peonage in some of those cases, or involuntary servitude or subjected to the slave trade or being listed as falsely imprisoned, Mm. Okay, so think about that as a separate category from trafficking or being held hostage. Blackmail. If, um, if you don't work for me, I will deport you. Extortion. Or perjury. Okay? People who have committed those kinds, being subjected to that, or actually employers who are, who are committing those kinds of offenses. Could be turned in, okay, by an employee who could seek to get a U-Visa on that
1: basis. I see um, where this is going. <laughs> going. Okay, so I see where this is going. you go- see how these two provisions
0: of the law could, um, or these, these sure, two, two, sure. Different, two different scenarios could work together? So okay, ICE comes,
1: uh, it might not be a bad thing for everyone on site. Oh, uh, well, you know. Oh, my.
0: Well, I don't think that ICE, um, I don't think that, that ICE is about to give U-Visa status to everybody who's unauthorized working on business premises. But um, if someone... Um, It would be risky, but if someone took that initiative, an employee took that initiative and decided that he was going to turn somebody in or alert ICE to the fact that an employer had a large body of illegal workers, he could uh, attempt to get a U visa um, by cooperating with them. with federal agents to that end, and um,
1: then send a text back home to so put everybody is, on the bus. This is a okay. nightmare. This no, is a nightmare,
0: scenario, a nightmare scenario. Nightmare scenario. Anyone for, who
1: wants to know what we're talking about, go back and listen to the U visa show of December second.
0: Except that we didn't talk about the U Visa in, in the context of, of employers. But Very true. I'm just raising that um, as a as a possible scary, scary nightmare of possibility for employers. Well, what what other kinds of of um, what other kinds of, of penalties could be attached? Well, not just the criminal penalties, but civil penalties. Knowingly hiring and continuing to employ violations that say aren't a pattern of pra- or practice. Employers that are determined to have knowingly committed um, one of these violations have to, have to cease dead lawful activity and they may be fined according to three different of violations that we don't have enough time to go into in terms of the description of, but they're increasingly serious and um, they're also they're also segregated into time periods. For a first tier violation that was committed on uh, March 27th, um, 2008, or after, um, there there's a range of 375 to 3200 dollars for each violation. Second tier, 3200 to 6500. Third tier, 4300 to 16 to 16,000. Then between um, 32608 and 92999, um, the penalties are are slightly less than those three tiers with the cap of $11,000 for third tier. And then before 929.99, um, the penalties become less with the cap at 10,000 for a third tier violation. But if you think in terms of these um, these monetary penalties being for each and every violation, if you're an employer that is relying largely on illegal aliens, it's a substantial amount of money. In some of the case examples, I. I gave I talked about one case in which seven hundred thousand dollars of assets was reported to have been taken uh, by the government as a civil penalty for um, a knowing hire and continuing to hire violation. There are other kinds of there are other kinds of violations there' substantive and technical veri- verification violations that are tied specifically to how employers fill out the i nine form mm-hmm. so even if you haven 't knowingly hired or continued to uh, employ someone who was an unauthorized alien. If you have I-9 form violations, you can be fined for that, and they're divided into two camps. I realize we're coming short on time, so I can't go into um, great detail about that. But what kinds of things might be technical violations? Sure. Well, say on um, an example of technical violation given by, um, by ICENIT's um, Enforcement Handbook, The use of the Spanish version of the Form I-9 except in Puerto Rico. So if you are using a Spanish I-9 form, you can't do that except in Puerto Rico, that's a technical violation. Section 1 of the I-9 form violations, um, failure to ensure that an individual provides his or her maiden name, address, or birthday. that's an example. Or failure to ensure that an individual provides his or her alien registration number on the line next to the phrase in Section 1 of the Form, uh, Form I-9. Um, indicating a lawful a, a lawful permanent resident okay so you have to you have to provide the a number a alien registration number failure to ensure that the individual provides an a number or admission number on the line provided in section one Form i nine and that um, line is entitled an alien is authorized to work until but only if the a number only under certain conditions a failure to ensure that a preparer and or translator provides his name, address, signature, or date now notice if If an employer is very careful to to, to, to fill out the form completely and pays attention to that form and provides the detail, then an employer should have, and and does this in a bona fide way, and not in any kind of of way to hide information, then an employer should be okay. But there are substantial penalties that can be attached if you have some of these technical violations. You do have time to correct technical violations. If you don't correct technical violations within 10 days, you usually Mm. have 10 days to correct, then... um, then, um, you're going to have more serious problems with ICE. Those can be, um can be then fined for. Section 2, technical violations. A failure to provide a document title, um, of one of the documents that's required to show employment verification and identification number or expiration dates of those verification documents. A failure to provide the title of business name, business address. So this gives you a kind of, kind of, a um, kind of idea of the kind of detail that, um, ICE was looking for for technical violations. I'll give you some examples of substantive violations, but for the um, unpracticed ear, um, it may sound as though the substantive um, violations are also simply, um, simply technical ones. Let me see if I can find some, uh, some examples of substantive, of substantive violations. Yes, a section one violation. Failure to ensure a substantive violation. Failure to ensure that the individual provides his or her printed name in Section 1 of the Form I-9. Well, for the unpracticed surrogate, what's the difference between that and and failing to supply a maiden name, which was listed as a technical violation? See, this can get very uh, difficult to try to interpret. Failure to ensure that the individual checks a box in Section 1 of the Form I-9, attesting to whether he or she is a citizen or national of the United States, a lawful permanent resident, or an alien authorized to work until a specified date, or checking multiple boxes and testing to more than one of the above. Actually, that happens. I have seen um, I have seen forms in which um, in which more than one box is checked, so that it's ambiguous in the form whether the person is really authorized to work or not, and that would be a, a Section 1 substantive um, violation. Failing to ensure that the individual provides his or her um, A number on the line next to the phrase, lawful permanent residence, but only if. Okay, so again, some um, some provisions seem to mirror the technical violation um, violation um, provisions. So an employer may need help trying to sort out what's technical and what's substantive, and what am I subjecting myself to in terms of penalties if I've got these these violations? Mm-hmm. Well, what happens if you don't correct these the, the, um, substantive violations or um, or technical violations? It's possibly a huge civil fine. Okay, for uh, what could end up being a huge civil fine at the end of the day if you employ a large number of uh, illegal aliens, so there's a lot of money okay that there could be at stake here,
1: sure, sure, so it seems to me appropriate that if I were an employer, I would want someone to well, I am an employer but not a large employer if i would i'd be interested in having an immigration attorney come in and take a look. Is that something that happens?
0: Um, I think that immigration attorneys would certainly be willing to do that. I know i'm willing to help small businesses um, look at their i nine compliance and sure. to to help employers um, comply with the law, and also to minimize their risks of being subject to
1: these violations. All right, very good. Donna, if you could provide some contact information in case there's anyone out there who is interested in following up on any of these topics and would like some more information, how do they get a hold of you?
0: Well, my telephone number is 630-310-8302. My email address is aslerlaw, A-D-L-E-R-L-A-W, at comcast.net.
1: All right. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks for the great information. You're welcome. All right. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners who tune in to our Law Talk Radio programs and to our sponsors. We've had today the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme, the Lawyer Market, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, and credit damage expert George Binder. We have several upcoming shows, and what we are doing now, instead of reading those on the air, we're encouraging you to go to our website. Go to alrpra.com forward slash law talk radio, and that's actually alrpra.com forward slash law hyphen. Talk-Radio, where we have our upcoming broadcast listed, and we are also uh, searching for new programs and content this year in 2011. Uh, we're going to bring you more practice management issues, but also really focusing in on some hot topics of the day and bringing you the content that you want to hear. So do drop us a line and let us know what we can do to bring you better content. As a way of disclaimer, this general information program shares advice but does not constitute legal advice and the results may vary based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests among callers and guests on the show does not give rise to attorney-client relationships. If you have further questions, you are always encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. Finally, all of these callers remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Again, these Law Talk radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners as well as consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Of course, we always look forward to your comments and suggestions and ask that you uh, share or forward the shows that you like to others if you are finding these shows on uh, social media platforms or other communication uh, platforms. So, again, please share the shows with others. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.